History, Rabbi Blyweiss, Lecture 2. Uh, I'm passing out now for everybody um, my timeline, which is hardly, uh, hardly scientific or magical. It's the best I could slap together of a, of an, of a tricky... Uh, what's tricky here is really assigning accurate dates. There are no absolute accurate dates. There are Some of them are, but some of them are guesswork. Um, and if you're confused, if you stare down at the various dates and, uh, and events that, they, that uh, are described here, you'll notice there are a bunch of different dates. What's going on with that? Um, calendar, and what we think of in terms of calendar, is a tricky issue altogether. Julie, you want one of these? I'm just going into a timeline. So this at least gives you an overview of history approximately with some of the highlights. Obviously, it's not everything. It's not comprehensive, um, but it's not bad either. Um, here are the three, or I don't do this all the way down either, but um, what, what are the dates? In the left column are the dates according to the, the Jewish dates according to the Christian calendar. What? Yeah, I meant that. What does that mean? It means that most of us, sadly, are oriented to the fact that this year is 2014, more than we think of it as being, uh, right, Tafshin Ayin Dalet, or soon Tafshin Ayin Hey. So because of that, because so many people, especially when it comes to history, you've got to keep track of things with dates, and we think of terms of the secular Christian calendar, so what I did was I put the Jewish dates according to the Goyesha calendar, and that's why approximately, if this year is indeed according to the Christian calendar 2014, so relative, and that's of the common era, I don't use BC, AD, that's really Christian, BCE, CE is what they say, you know, before the common era and of the common era, so if we're, twel- if we're 2014 CE, well, Adam was born then 3760 before the common era, according to the Jewish calendar. One of the Jewish way of calculating things. And I'll, I'll, let me explain the other ways of calculating things. Go ahead. When, started, when, uh, when did it start the common era? When was um, the year zero. When but you knew started. that. That's not really your question. Oh, that's another question. Even the Christian scholars today have a consensus that Yashka didn't die in zero. The Jews, just wait to hear the Jewish version of Christianity. It's fantastic. Anybody know the Jewish story of Christianity? Yashka and his prostitute mother, I mean the Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, oh, it's crazy, tremendous, yeah. Yeah, very different story. Anyway, nobody thinks that he was really born in zero. It's just the early church fathers had this notion that it was zero and they start counting from them. It's something that's, that's not been accepted. That's what they think. So it's certainly for our purposes, totally unimportant, insignificant. We downplay it, but okay, that's how the world is and we've got to relate to the world. So that's why I use these dates. So you have 3760 before the Common Era, if you're using the Christian calendar. But of course, as far as we're counting, if we say it's 5774 this year, well, go back 5774 years. In year one, year one was when Adam Arishon was born, whatever birth meant in those days. Okay, that's, that's, that's year one. Okay, now go down. And then accordingly, I rate the various milestone events according to the Goetia calendar and then the Jewish calendar. The third date, which I only occasionally, sporadically include, go down, for example, where it says Shlomo HaMelech rules. You see that? About you know, 15, 15 items down the list. So you see, according to the Jewish Goyish calendar, it's 836 before the Common Era. According to the Jewish calendar, it's 2924. And then I have a third date that's called 970 BCE. Well, wait, and that's, more, that's what Aryeh was referring to. 
See, that's the Goyish, that's the Christian Christian calendar, and it's what's learned in that institution over the hill there that I referred to yesterday, the Hebrew University, and in most secular um, institutions. They've basically been brainwashed. I mean, they've accepted basically the Christian view of things, um, which is a different calendar. And at different points in the year, I mean, I want you to be knowledgeable about this stuff. Part of this, you can call it Jewish history, but I, another subtitle to this class is everything you need to know to be a knowledgeable Jew. That's what I try to get in here. And you should know these kinds of differentiables, why there are different calendar dates. They're big nafkaminas, big differences that have impact our lives, including, um, you know, they put, uh, they, they date things differently. They say that uh, Shlomo started earlier than we think he really did. What difference could it possibly make? Well, I'll give you one classic difference, and I'll flesh this out in a couple months when we get to this point in time. But, you know, Purim, they say that the first temple was destroyed in the year 586 BCE. You can go almost halfway down the list, and you can see that on the, on the far right side. It says 586 BCE. But, you know, we hold that it was 422. And if you say that in your discussion group at, in the history class at Hebrew University, they'll say, you crazy religious zealot. They'll reject the real Jewish date. But that's the authentic date, that's the traditional date, and to say otherwise is, otherwise is a kind of a kfira, it's a kind of a heresy to say that. Among other reasons is because they, they, their synchronology of everything is off. They say, for example, that Purim took place after the temple, the second temple had already been rebuilt. That's a major problem because we have in our tradition, and Chazal are emphatic on the subject, the second temple had been begun, the building of the temple had been begun and then stopped. Achashverosh, and this is where we pick up, who's learned Maseches Megillah here? Fantastic Maseches, you know a lot of what I'm about to say. Clearly, Achashverosh had stopped the proceedings and the entire episode that we call Megillus Esther took place right in the middle there and it was because Kimu Vakimu, because we reaccepted the Torah under those circumstances that the temple then was completed. That then the building um, continued and ultimately was finished. But according to the secular studies, and they've been influenced again by the Christian world, they put the whole thing much later, which changes the whole sequential uh, importance of the events. And it means that, you know, Purim was really just a, a nice, fun story, but didn't actually impact our historical narrative flow. That's a problem for us. Go ahead, Barak. In the first uh, period of uh, Midras Esther, yes, it talks all about the history from the very beginning. I mean, they talk for all sure. About that whole time period. Our uh, authoritative source in Chazal, Chazal again is the term Chachamim Zichon and Livracha. It's a way we affectionately refer to the rabbis, the sages who who taught with Ruach Hakodesh. They weren't just making it up; they really knew what they were talking about. It was part of the oral tradition. Um, our, our tradition is the book that spells out history is a book called the Seder Olam Rabbah. I remember the Seder Olam Zuta. It was written by Rabbi Yossi Aglili, and he didn't write it single-handedly. It was based on all the traditions of all the historical data. When I was in my tour guide, uh, you know, I'm a tour guide, so when I, I ran a program training tour guides, and I have to do everything through the secular tourism ministry, and we brought in an official history professor from the university. He had a little beanie on his head. Um, and that was even more problematic because he taught some kfira, he, he taught Trave stuff, but he had to keep on his head, so people got confused. And he said, and then somebody asked him, hey, you know, the dates you're giving us that we're supposed to learn for the ministry test to know all this history, because tour guys have to know all history, they said, but that contradicts classic Jewish tradition. And he said, oh, you're talking about Seder Olam Rabbah, and then he said some uh, pretty nasty things about the Seder Olam Rabbah. That was a rejection. He said, they don't know what they're talking about in Chazal, and we finally have it straight in university. 
My refutation, and I didn't take him on there because it's not worth having the debate, he thinks he knows better anyway, but the refutation for his point is that he's been brainwashed by the Christian dominant world out there. Um, I'm trying to set the record straight and do it, do it the Jewish way. I mentioned yesterday, there is no such thing as an objective history. Anybody proffering a history is going to tell you from their perspective, I admit it, I'm really into Judaism. I think Torah was given by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and this class is going to reflect that. Right? So that's my bias walking into that. If you're not into that, fine, take me on. Um, anyway, anything else you want to... I don't want to spend too much time here on this. Anything else that's interesting, striking, any questions that you have? Arye, oh, you asked, well, what happened to those 220 years or something? It, it varies at different points in history. It's usually about 160 years or so. So the Christians invented it. By the way, I'm not the first person to identify it. The Gdolim addresses is a great piece, for example, of Sa'ad Gaon. He says, and he's the one who really points the finger at the Christian world, what they did is they tweaked the calendar and they pushed it off in order to manipulate it, they had um, what, uh, a syndrome that we call Mashiach uncertainty, insecurity. Um, they were very paranoid about, uh-oh, they're not going to believe that our Messiah is really the Messiah. So they tweaked it, the years of the Messiah, to make it correspond with the Yovel Jubilee year. They tweaked it to make it correspond with a certain passage in Sefer Daniel, so that you know Daniel predicts the future and the eschatological uh, messianic era. And, and in order to make everything parse out with that vision to make him the legitimate Messiah, they changed the calendar. That's, the, that's, that's what Rosadi explains in much greater detail than I just went into, um, and that's why they added the extra years. But Chazal are very clear. I mean, the secular view says that the first and second temple period were much longer than they were. Chazal are very clear. This first temple were how, how many years? You know this? 420. 420, excellent. The second temple? 410 years. Um, it's the mnemonic, the Balaturim gives the Gematria mnemonic. He says, Shemen Katit, crushed Shemen Katit is spelled as follows. In Gematria, you get the first and second temple. You've got 410 years, 420 years. See that, right? 20 and, uh, and 400, 10 and 400. And the third temple, how many years? Endeavor, right? Forever and ever and ever. Right? That's, that's the third temple. Okay, where well, we left off yesterday, Hashem had created the world. Hashem had created the universe. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Um, we mentioned this briefly yesterday. There was a certain quality of a light, but it was not like you and I think of it. certainly wasn't that oh, fluorescent stuff. Don't you love when they start blinking? Uh, I get a headache. Um, what was the light that was being referred to in this puzzle according to the Makubali, according to the Kabbalists? It's immense light. It's a spiritual light, referred to later as the Or HaGanuz, from the same term Ganuz, like a Geniza, you put something in hiding, Or HaGanuz, because it only existed for 36 hours. When Adam sinned, as a result of that, the world diminished and wasn't worthy yet of receiving that Or HaGanuz. So after that first Arab Shabbos and Shabbos, it was the first half day, it was the Arab Shabbos that Adam was, was created, so you had, 12, you, had, um, you, had, you had 12 hours of that, plus another 24 hours of Shabbos. And after Shabbos, Hashem took, as it were, this is something that's so spiritual, it's very hard for us to conceptualize it, but He took this magnificent light and He hid it away, lasid lovo, for the future generations. However, it resurfaces and hints at it, hints, we see hints at that light, um, tantalizingly, throughout all of our history. Um, for example, this is all from the Bnei Yisrael, he brings all this down. Um, there are four significant places where you can find that light in our world as we have it. And the hint is that it corresponds to the number of hours that it existed in this world. 
in this physical world. 36, where do you find the number 36? It is, it's two times five, but that's not significant. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Let's get back to them at the end. They're the Lamed Vavnikim. We have, we have 36 Sadiqim, based on a Pasuk and Chavakuk. There are 36 genera- um, Sadiqim, righteous people in every generation. And because of them, their merits, the whole generation exists. Without them, we're lost. So that's for sure. They sustain that aura. The news, where else we have 36? And you know these, if, even if you don't realize you know them. Where else is the number 36 figured in uh, Jewish tradition? Okay, I'll tell you. 36 numbers of tractates in the Babylonian Talmud, 36 hours that we had before Shabbos, and finally the 36 candles that we light in the course of Hanukkah. 36 hours before Shabbos? No, I I said that too quickly. It's the 36 hours. One of the four is this 36 hours that the organos existed. So you have the 12 hours before Shabbos plus the first Shabbos, total of 36 hours. Is that including the three um, Babas? It does. That's 36. It adds up to 36. Um, I think it's not. I think it's. I think they're all together counted as Nazikim. I think so, but you can check me on that. I'm not 100% certain. Um, the world was created, and we think Adam Arishon came into existence. That was the peak experience, and it's been downhill since. That's how, from a Torah perspective, we understand history. We know, and the world is dominated by this mode of thinking, Charles Darwin, who is a religious Christian. Um, but what's referred to as secular Darwinism has a slightly different take on things. Their approach to creation and then to the ongoing existence of time, what they call evolution, is very, very different. They think that actually we started out in the opposite trajectory, very low, and have only gone up from there. And that um, as history marches on, so that humanity improves and the world is only getting better. That's the dominant worldview uh, in most Western circles nowadays. They have firm faith in human prowess, our abilities. We're going to be able to conquer everything and we can go into space. And we can even, we, you know, now they have televisions the size of your little pinky, right? So, like, you know, everything is all going to get better from here. Um, now, what's interesting about that, that mentality dominated what's called the Enlightenment. Studied a little bit of history in the last few hundred years that we're only getting better. It's one of the reasons why people abandoned organized religions in droves, Jews, Christians, and others, started to say, who needs God? Who needs organized religion? Look at us. We're amazing. We're doing it ourselves. And to some degree, especially with the advances of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, you think about that, and all the incredible things, and it's interesting, I didn't mean it as an, uh, as, as an overlap, but that list of, of scientific achievements that we've, that we've managed just the last century alone, it's amazing. I mean, think about our lives, running water, electricity, what we have, the ability to cure diseases, our life expectancy is so much longer today than it was not even that long ago. And, 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 and so the, the consensus has, had been for a long period that we're only getting better from here. But I'll tell you something, especially near the end of what they call the 20th century on the Christian calendar, that's been reevaluated, and a lot of people don't think that so much anymore. After a century of genocides, of Stalin, of Nazis, of the Gulag, Gulag Archipelago, to Mao Zedong after, I mean, we're still living through it, after what's going on in the ISIS and the, the various uh, the nut jobs in the, in the uh, radical Muslim world and so on, people are starting to second guess, do we really owe our faith in humanity? And this is, we're going to take ourselves to better places. Maybe all we're doing in, our, in all of our technology is figuring out better weapons to destroy ourselves with. 
right? So, so increasingly, and, and I think reflected in that, and obviously I'm waxing philosophical here a little bit and going, going very broad, but I think if you, if you see that, an increasing disillusionment that has kind of emerged with humanity, you also see concurrent uh, return to religion. Because, you know, when people aren't going to do it anymore, suddenly you start to realize we need a Vina Shabbat and, and understandably, people are starting, there is a movement back, and I think all these events are interrelated. By the way, anybody learn Darwinism here? Yeah. Okay. Darwinism, uh, this is not what I'm going to do now, and I'm not very good at it, but Darwinism can be refuted. The survival of the fittest, the natural selection of the species, and those that emerged obviously were the strongest, and those that didn't fell away. Right? So we're here, so we must be the best. Well, one basic question you can ask about that is maybe there were fitter species, species that simply didn't persist, and they're not, healed, they're not here anymore to prove that. In which case, then, the fit did not survive, or the fittest did not survive. You can't refute that. It's simply a logical conundrum. Okay? That's, one, that's one area you can go. Statistics seem to indicate that the chance of a simple amoeba developing by chance are virtually minimal. The complexity of a simple amoeba, let alone our own complicated organism with all the various things going on in our brains, uh, that that could exist by chance. Increasingly, the consensus in the scientific world is that's not, that, that's not likely to happen. Um, there are questions Kashi's asked about Darwin. Again, I don't want to dwell on this, but if you ever would want to, you could, you could pursue these facts. Greater minds than mine have pursued this. Let me just throw these out, and then you'll, then you'll interject, Aryeh, including how was there a crossover of the species, something that they never have explained, because they identified apes, and then suddenly they're human beings. At one point, there's what they call the missing link. Where is it? An answer that, that there's still un, that we don't have. Um, there are some who attempt to reconcile Darwinism with Tyra. I don't go here either, but since some people do, I'm going to share that with you because I'm giving you like a, you know, you should know that these things are out there. Go open up a Masechus Sanhedrin to something really interesting. On, on page Kuf Tuf, Amud Aleph, in the wide line there, it, it mentions that in the generation of the dispersal, what's called the Dora Floga, you're familiar? Migdal Bavel, the, the Tower of Babylon, and then uh, the 70 languages are created. We're going to go there soon enough in history. Yeah? So when that happens, the Gemara there indicates that people became Tukim, monkeys, and apes. Okay, uh, so that in other words, what that Gemara indicates is maybe indeed there are some kind of genetic connections, and maybe Darwin's onto something, but maybe it went in the opposite order, where Darwin understandably thought that we descended from the apes. Maybe there are apes who descended from people after the Dorha Floga. Maybe it's all possible. Was that? Oh, I'm going to get to the flood. We'll get. We'll talk about the flood further. There's a Mishnah in Kilayim that refers to a certain species called the Adne Hasada. Um, the Adne Hasada is a Minchaya. It's a kind of a, an undomesticated animal. And Rabbi Yossi tells us it's Adam. It's unique in the family of species because unlike any other species, it causes Tuma Ba'ohel like a human being. You familiar with that? You know that Tuma Ba'ohel means that we have the highest degree of tumability, of impurity, insofar as we generate tuma, impurity, just by being in the same building. If you're in a hospital with a dead body, you're tummy. It's called tumas ohel. Just by being in the same building. And there's this one interesting species called the adne hasode, 
that's unique of all the other species, only it, like people, are mitame ba'ohel, and mitiferis Israel. there commenting it says, that's referring to an orangutan. So uh, there are some really interesting, intriguing uh, sources in Chazal that seem to also connect apes, the families of apes of human beings, but they invert the order. Okay, you can go there as well. All that stuff, is that only focusing for planet Earth, or is that the whole universe as a whole? The Torah doesn't relate to outer space. As one of, one of my so rabbis said, in the, in the early 2000s, they um, brought back the preliminary, the first photographs from Mars, and there was some indication that there might be something similar to H2O on Mars, so there's all kinds of excitement, so wherever there's water, there's life forms, right? Yeah. So there was all this excitement going on in, in the media, and they were asking all the religious figures, what do you think about the possibility of life in outer space? And so they asked one of my rabbis, what do you think about the possibility of life in outer space? And, and um, his response, he was living in New York, and Brooklyn should appreciate such things. He said, he said, what, intelligent life outside of the, new, the greater New York area? One of my favorite quotes. Um, if you know New Yorkers, it's perfect. Torah is about, get, we, there's all these questions out there that we'll never know that are beyond us. It's Misa Gracious, what I refer to in the mission Chagiga. That's not for us to dwell on. We can. It's interesting. So what? What Torah is concerned with, preoccupied with, obsessed with, is how do we take what we do have in our hands and make it better? How can I be a moral individual? How do I treat my wife with cover, the necessary cover she deserves? After a long day with our nine kids and the, all the various things going on, and to sit there and listen after I've had my own hard long day and all the rest of that, that's what really at the end of the day Akadosh Barfu cares about, and that's what we focus on. Um, what is interesting, we're talking about evolution, whether we came from the apes, whether the apes came from the humans, what, what the scientists never address, because it's not something scientifically that you can empirically study, is the neshama. The neshama, the Jewish soul, which is not subject to any microscopic study, um, which is the essence of Adam, never evolved. The neshama is a reflection, it's its selam elokim, it's the spark of divinity that we have in us. That didn't evolve. If you, can, if you want to look at Dar the Torah version of Darwin, you can posit as follows, the survival of the moral fittest. That's our, that's our way of looking at things. Who are going to be the righteous people? And it's not just a cute aside. If you're familiar with this, we talk about, the Medrash says something very difficult. By Masan Taira, it tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was the, was the one, in, was the thousand, thousandth generation of humanity when he came, to, when he received the Torah. And if you do a quick mathematical survey, you realize which generation was Moshe Rabbeinu relative to Adam Arishon? Meaning you can count in the Torah 26 generations between Adam and, and Moshe. Right, father and son from Adam down to Moshe, you 26 generations, in which case the Medrus asked the question, what's the deal, how does that work out, Why, how is there a thousand... What, how is there a thousand generations from Zotamatan Torah? And the answer that the Medrash tells us, there were 974, count them, 974 generations that predated Adam. And what happened to them? They were each successively destroyed because they were each corrupt. So when we say we're counting the, the survival of the moral fittest, it is possible to be alive in the world and to lead such a bankrupt morally bankrupt kind of existence that you're simply wiped off the planet. We're going to get to the door of the marble, we're going to get to the door of Vlog, and we're going to talk about this. This is always a possibility. It lingers in the air as, as, a, as a constant, well, it's a threat, but it's really a warning that we should shape up.
Because the Kaddish Baruch Hu only creates us so that we bring goodness into the world. We don't do that. We don't fulfill our charge. We don't really justify our existence. Since every medrash like this is meant to teach us something, I think the most obvious of the different levels of meaning, the most obvious level of meaning is our existence is not a guarantee. It's not guaranteed. It's not automatic. We don't deserve it. We have to justify it. Now it is since Matan Taira and Akash Baruch Hu promised Moshe Rabbeinu that since then he's not going to wipe out Klal Yisrael, but the human humanity's existence. I'm certainly how it's going to go from here. Anybody here learned Perak the last chapter, or some say the last chapter of, of Masechet Sanhedrin, all about the end of days? Good, scary stuff. And what's evident there, we'll spend some time, at the, if you stick with me, um, the few solid souls who stick with me, we get t-shirts at the end of the year, I survived all of Jewish history. And those of you who stick with me, we see the entire arc of Jewish history, and we go into the end of days, and we go into modernity and the state of Israel and all, and the Holocaust and everything else. And then I do a whole number, about, it takes about two days, we go into Mashiach and the world to come, and we, we talk about that, and we, we, we consider all of these possibilities um, where are we going and what, 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 are, what are we going to get to get there? There are two, at least two scenarios that the Gemara very tantalizingly leaves unresolved. We can either top out or bottom out. And this is Kali Yisrael too. Meaning things can get so terrible, so petrid, so, so, so putrid, so petrified that, um, that um, we simply, that Akash Baruch Hu has no other recourse other than save us in the last minute. Alternately, we can try to fix things to the best. I mean, that's kind of why you came to Derek this year, I, I presume, that we're trying to fix, we're, we're, we're part of the good guy team that try to fix the world, yeah. right? So, um, so on that level, on that level, so we're trying to top out and then bring Mashiach as an organic, natural kind of development. That's what we're working on here. After 974 generations, you said they were corrupt. Yeah. Our generation had to we don't consider that corrupt as well? No. Adam Rishon was, was a pure tzaddik who made a mistake. That's not the same thing. It's an excellent question. The other generations were without virtue, and therefore they perished. Adam had immense, Adam had immense vir virtues, kind of like most of us, and he blew it, kind of like most of us. Science didn't reveal where or how man started. They talk about the, the, the theory of evolution, but they don't really... Uh, the, Torah, the Torah does fill in that blank. Uh, the Torah specifically tells us that all of creation, we said, this, we said this before, we'll say it again, was for man, it was for um, Adam, it was for the Neshama, it was for Matan Taira, it was specifically for Klal Yisrael. <coughs> the Medrash, excuse me, the Mishnah, in Perkei Avos, tells us, Chaviv Adam, beloved is man, Shenivra B'Tselem, man was created in God's image, and that's why all human beings, I do a number on this too, there's a tendency for people to look down on non-Jews and to refer to them disparagingly. Pay attention to this Mishnah. Man, that's referring to all humanity, was, is beloved and needs to be, deserves our love. They're created in God's image. Um, people who have a tendency to tell off-color racist jokes about various, et, various ethnicities have to keep in mind, they're also made to tell the Melokim. You remember Akadosh Baruch Hu's response when the angels sang Shira at the destruction of the Egyptian fleets in the, in the Yamsuf. Hashem was none too pleased. He said, The work of my hands are, are, are drowning in the sea, and you're celebrating, you're singing a song. I'm not, I don't take any uh, satisfaction from the fact that some of my humanity is being destroyed, and that's our attitude. However, Klal Yisrael, as we're going to get to, and I'm a little ahead of myself, but I have to include this as we talk about the creation of man. Klal Yisrael is different. Chiba Yisera Nodaslo, Shaniva B'Tzel, we'll see that Klal Yisrael is different. We're called Bonim Lomakom. We're called um, Hashem's children. So we'll get to Klal Yisrael. Let's, let's, let's focus on Adam. In Gan Eden, Adam 
And according to different versions, there's a machlokis in Chazal where Chava came from. Um, <coughs> some say there was one view that she was in fact crafted from his rib. The Christians grab onto that. A version that Rashi brings is that Adam himself was born as a unified being, both female and male. He was du partsufi, two face. And that when he created Chava, Hashem simply split Adam apart into two halves. Are you labeled? What are you going to say? Um, that um, they say every man, is not, his body is not completed. That's 100% until, true. Until it's from his thigh, because that's where his wife was created. Because that's why we say the ultimate peak spiritual experience takes place between when, when a man and his wife um, physically are intimate. Because what they're potentially doing, and they've got to be doing it according to halacha, there's got to be taras mishpacha, and there's got to be a lot of love and mutual respect, and all the proper, uh, all the right midos. When everything is done correctly, they are actually closest to Kaddish Baruch because they're actually coming full circle, coming back into the way Adam was originally created, as one being. And, and it comes up, the ramifications are so profound and so far-reaching, it's included, it's in my file, I have all my files, my topics, but it's part of the discussion on what they call today homosexuality, and whatever they can say about a homosexual union, same-sex marriage, and all the rest of that, they can't say this. Physiologically, it's simply not possible to reunite in such a way, and there's something spiritually profound about this, um, in a way that actually completes creation and comes back full circle. That'll never happen between members of the same gender. It always happens between, potentially happens between a male and a female. Um, Adam lived in Adam. Adam lived what we would call a utopian life in Gan Eden. It's an example of what we talked about yesterday. Is something Ilan, you and I went, went, went at this a little bit. Something we can't really picture. What was his life in Gan Eden? It's so foreign from our experience in this world. We are so shallow. We are so incredibly materialistic and trivial and petty that to imagine, to even like conjure up what was Adam's life in Gan Eden. Let me give you one image that stays with me. I find this one of the most powerful images that I've ever picked up based on a medrash. If we were to time warp back to Gan Eden and see Adam, what you would see, what you would perceive, what would emanate from the human being was his neshama. He was so soulful that that's what emerged and you could, that's what you saw all around him. If you tried with all of your might, you might possibly make out his goof. Maybe you would perceive his physical reality, but you definitely would see his spirituality if you consider that and realize we are in the exact inverted position today. Where what we see when we, when we contemplate, when we encounter other human beings, we see the goof, we see the physicality, and maybe if you look in their eyes, if you look really closely, you might be able to contemplate, might be able to encounter their, their, their humanity, their spirituality. But you've got to try really hard, and even then, uh, we're not so good at that. Most people, most people we, when we walk into a room, okay, how can I mean, we don't think in so many self-conscious ways, but this is really what people are about. Watch, watch how people interact. They walk and say, hmm, how can I manipulate this group of people now to get what I need from them? Or alternately, hmm, this is an interesting room. I can't get anything from them. They're not interesting to me. I'm going to go out and proceed to another you know, group of humanity so I can manipulate them to, towards my own personal needs. He was physical. He was, he was gorgeous. The Gemara and Baba Messiah describes him as the best-looking human being ever to walk the planet. They're close, they're close facsimiles, but nothing like Adam Arisha. Adam was perfection. It says in Fair enough. There is such a statement, and that's not necessarily a contradiction, because it's not as comparing him with his, his Al-Jazadi Adam Arisham. Adam Arisham was the was the quintessential man, and 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 he was. But when you saw him, probably because of his immense spirituality, it just emanated. 
he was he was he was uh, he was ideal. There was never anything quite like it before. Hashem showed Adam. Adam was smarter than any human being who walked any human being that walked the planet. He showed him all of the future, showed him the fate of every future generation. Adam stood according to Gemara and Chagiga. This is answering your question. Why? Why he stood from the heavens to the earth. His spiritual capacity was limitless. He was literally created with Selim Elohim. We're going to be seeing a lot of Medrashe Chazal, a lot of Agadata. When you hear these things, try as best you can not to take them only at face value. I can't picture what it would be to be a human being who can extend all the way from heaven to earth. Clearly, Chazal are trying to convey something that's otherworldly about him, even though his, his feet are firmly planted in this world, without any question. He's trying to express something, what, kind of like what I was saying earlier, that's beyond our ability to fathom. He had a spirituality about him that we can only dream of. That in our, do you know that feeling of immense spirituality that you don't know how to express? And you get frustrated sometimes because you, you just have this immense... You don't even know that it's spirituality sometimes. Sometimes people think of it as the Sahara. That's a mistake. Um, but there's an immense spirituality going on within each of us. We don't even know how to fathom it. Adam was in touch with it and he can express it. That's one way you have of thinking of this of this extraordinary being. When he sinned, Hashem laid his hand upon Adam, diminished his stature, so that he could hide among the trees of the garden. He literally became dominated by his physicality, a plight that most of us are suffer with till today. One thing that starts happening to Adam as a result of his sin is he produces a new substance that he never produced before. What is it? Waste, excrement. Waste is a, is a reflection of the fact that we're um, flawed. If you have um, more body odor, if you have uh, you know, more putrid kinds of waste that, em that emit from your body, often it correlates to sin. In contrast, among, I think of another Agatha in Baba Metzia, we find pure tzaddikim who attain such a high level that, for example, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, when he passes away, his, for all kinds of political reasons, his wife kept his body in the attic for 18 and some say 22 years. Anybody know what it's about? And his body didn't decompose. And it didn't even begin, it didn't even smell. Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, when he died, he achieved such a high degree of spiritual perfection that his body didn't decompose. And he didn't even smell, with one exception, the Gemara says this, the one exception, and actually comes up at the end of Gemara, Makos 2. The very end of the, uh, very, very end of Makos, so Bezash Hashem will all get there this year, you'll see the same Rabbi Lazar is referred to, and it says, it says like this about him. His wife, once when she checked on his body, went and saw something that horrified her, because she thought her husband was this perfect tzaddik, and suddenly she saw a tiny worm emerge from his ear. And she thought, uh-oh, maybe he's not this big tzaddik that I always thought he was. He comes to her in a dream, and he explains, he says, you know why that happened? Because my, one of my good traits was I used to be somebody who protested and always defended the honor of tzaddikim. Anybody who criticized a great uh, a gadol or a tzaddik, I always was the first to defend him. One time I didn't defend somebody enough, and as a result that was considered a blemish on my neshama, and that was that worm. But that means that if you have particularly um, rancid foot odor or, uh, or body odor, maybe you need to do some or some kind of spiritual inventory to check out what's going on. That's what's being said here. The waste that comes out of Adam, which probably smelled a good deal better than our waste, is a result of his sin, and everything begins to correlate. Do you realize every aspect of our creation has a meaning, has purpose? Um, 
and this is even something as seemingly mundane as 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 our, as our waste. By the way, for forty years in history, we also didn't produce waste when in the, in the midbar, in the desert, we ate man, we ate, we ate the perfect food, we had no excrement. Yeah. A lot of rabbis tend to be who said rabbis are always sadiqim. I wouldn't necessarily draw these conclusions then. Like, I, I wouldn't necessarily judge, oh, therefore he's fat or he's smelly and that means he's a big sinner. I don't know how it always matches up. I'm only broadly indicating, in, indicating some kind of correlation without knowing how it all maps out. Um, by the way, Rabbi Lazar, go look at the bar there, was apparently, but don't take this literally, was apparently obese. How fat was he? He was so fat that when he and Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Yishmael would stand next to each other, they get a whole team of oxen to go between them, and none of them would touch. And go figure out that Gemara. It's fantastic. Uh, okay, but not for us right now. Let me just finish this, this unit. I like to try to finish uh, a whole unit, so let me just say the, the, la the, last, the last bit for today. We bless, by the way, we say after we go to the bathroom as a sign of the fact, as a reminder to ourselves that currently we have ill health and that's a temporary state of affairs. We're dreaming and davening of a day when we no longer have this ill state of affairs where we have such things as human excrement. Um, Adam initially is his name. It reflects his perfection. Um, right? It also, it was to bring him down to earth. Literally, Adam is from Adama. And it's meant to bring him down to earth because he was such a great being that there was a risk of literally him becoming deified, turned to God himself. And so he's called Adam to remind him and everybody else he's not... What's that? He was created. He was created. It's one of the reasons why Adam gave, created a, second, a secondary being, Adam and Chava, one to the other, um, so that they shouldn't confuse him with the Kaddish Baruch But another, another factor was that he was so immense, so spiritual, that too could have led to a confusion. That's why he's called Adam. Eventually we see that just like Adam, from the outset we're concerned that Adam would be turned into an object of worship himself, that's exactly what pagans and what Ovevarazara would, would eventually do. If you study Avodazara, another one of my pet topics, another one of my files, um, you actually see that Avodazara idolatry is really a worship of, of, of man of himself. Anytime he's worshiping stars and moons and all kinds of weird gadgets and whatnot, he's really just worshiping himself. And you can understand how we fall prey to that in the modern world with our egotism and narcissism that, that plagues us in the modern world. It's an extension of that. We're pretty amazing. And our minds and our bodies and everything about us, there's so much to be mispalit from, to be, to be uh, amazed with in the, in the true sense of the word amazement, amazement. You can understand how humans could be, could be deified. And we're warned from the outset in the Torah, anything wondrous you find in people and yourself and others, always connect back with the Kaddish Baruch When you see a beautiful person, we're supposed to say a bracha, because we're supposed to say that greatness in that person, we see a king, we see an ugly person, everything ultimately should lead us back to Hashem, anything tremendous. It's the real reason, I just said this at lunch yesterday, somebody, somebody was trying to figure out, how do I work on my gaiva and my arrogance? I said, if you realize all of your virtues come from Hashem, except for the moral ones. If you have a moral virtue, that's something that you did, fantastic. But if you're smart, if you're good looking, if you're, I don't know what, all your good qualities, you didn't do that. Kaddish Baruch did that. That just means you have greater obligation to use those things. L'shem Shemayim. Okay, tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to go on to Adam, the sin, and the Mabu.